0: Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mason. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Album Cover, where we take a look at music beyond the line of notes and get the backstory behind what was really going on. Right now with me, I have Mr. Herb Millicent, producer, arranger, music extraordinaire. You heard some of his cuts on the acts such as Bobby Brown, Brownstone, Mary J. Blige, Jamega, Total, and the list goes on and on. Mr. Millicent, thank you for coming on to the podcast.
1: Uh, you're welcome, Jay. You're welcome. It's uh, my pleasure to be here, bro.
0: No problem. I really appreciate you taking the time out doing this interview, but I'll be remiss if I didn't start the interview
1: off saying, how are you holding up
0: since COVID and given the light with what's been going on in five
1: countries in the past week? Um, I've been holding up pretty pretty good, man. It's, uh, you know, some people on the, on the forefront, on the front of this, what's going on, and I appreciate them. And um I think, uh, you know, despite some of the unfortunate experiences that, or situations that have taken place Um, I gotta say that this is the closest that I've ever seen people from different um ethnic backgrounds get together walking together for the same goal so I have to say that it's really you know, this is, it's, a, it's a good time if I you know what I'm saying
0: right where well, everybody's coming together and learning the dialogue
1: now with the
0: recent events do you think that there'll be a rise in more mainstream acceptance of what was considered message music back in the 60s and 70s with the likes of Woody Guthrie Joan
1: Baez, and what was coming out of uh, Philly Soul with and Hump. I think this is a good time for that music to come back. Absolutely. 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 I feel like more than ever we need that music because music as a whole for the last decade or more has been, our black music has been used to fuel more violence and a few more negativity while making money. Then I'm not going to compare it because, you know, the music that I relate to the most is the one is the music that I produce and love black music, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, coming from those eras of Marvin the you know, the 60s, 70s, and we had music that was kind of uplifting. So I, I have to <laughs> say that I'm hoping. I know I'm going to be doing it regardless. You know what I mean? So, right.
0: And I implore all artists that have a platform, use it for good to uplift. And this month is Black Music Month, so we're celebrating the legacy and the rich traditions that black music has given this country, influencing countless genres. And using the music to tell a message.
1: It is. It is Black Music Month.
0: Yeah, it is. So, kicking it off, you grew up in the South Bronx. Now, where did your love of music come from, and were you sneaking out, listening to some of the music that was coming out of the park jams or raiding through somebody's collections of eight-track tapes with DJ Hollywood, Eddie Chiba, some of the early DJ and pioneers of hip-hop?
1: Actually, my love for music was developed organically because my brother, my only brother, he used to play all of the classic music when I was, you know, younger, so I adapted by sharing the room with him. I just kind of like fell in love with music. And um, you know, as far as the music playing in the parks, you know, I was down the block from those parks, so couldn't help but to really get it, hear it, even if you was just in the park playing basketball, you know what I mean? Oh, I know I was. While I was playing basketball, I was listening to the block parties, you know what I mean? The hip hop, the earlier days of hip hop playing in, in, in the block. So
0: it was a very good time because you were in on the ground floor of what was to come with this emerging music music scene called hip-hop which was spread all throughout the world now what was the first record that you listened to that inspired you to say man I want to learn how to make records
1: I mean off the top of my head I would have to say it was a couple of songs uh, in the 90s um, from Freddie Riley God, like Groove Me you know what I mean the, the, that, that the New Jack Swing era is what really impacted my in, impacted my or inspired me to want to make records
0: yeah cause for me I grew up in that time period being a young kid in the 90s and just remembering how r&b sounded before 87 that was when make it last forever by Keith sweat came out and how it was very adult contemporary more in line for adults but once make it last forever came out it was finally an album that said this is what r&b sounds like for the kids of the day where it interjected that hip-hop flavor and still kept the melody and richness of R&B mm-hmm. remember
1: that make it last forever plays in my head at just mentioned in the song
0: right and the funny thing about that record was I used to work at a radio station in North Carolina where back in the 80s I guess someone got Keith Sweat to come on to do a promo run down in a little hole in the wall club in my neck of the woods and then at the radio station was a platinum plaque that was presented to the radio rep or make it last forever and I just thought that was kind of cool and Teddy when Guy's debut album came out the following year, it was a game changer because I didn't notice until doing my research a year or so ago that Groove Me sampled Champ by the Mohawks. Mm-hmm. And listening to that, I was like... <clears throat> whoa this is funky you were taking collages of certain records and making it into a whole new flavor so prior to hearing groove me and all of the other records that you mentioned did you have a home studio
1: where you were making your own demos yeah initially i did i had a little studio in an apartment i lived in Started out with a four track i used to program on atari it looked like a little game you know what i'm saying it was atari pro 24 and that was how i made my music created my music or, you
0: know. Wow. And were you doing pause tapes as well? Mm-hmm. Pause tapes where you were taking bits of songs on cassette tape, and you would just loop nah, it, was- pause and just record a separate part of the gap maybe like a full however amount of minutes of songs that
1: you want to take. Nah, nah, I wasn't doing that. That's the first time I heard that. Are you teaching me something?
0: Yeah, that was a lot of the techniques that a lot of the early hip-hop producers were using before the samplers came in where they would take albums and just mm-hmm. record it onto a cassette tape and then just loop the part over and over and just record it until maybe you got a two or three minute sample and mm. they were loading in samples that way. You were working at a soundtrack studios, and while you were working there, you were discovered by Teddy. So how did your time working at Soundtrack prepare you for when you got the call to go down to Virginia Beach
1: And what was Teddy? Well, I was sharing a room under Tony Prendat. He was an engineer producer. And so, he shared a room. He allowed me to move some of my equipment in his his room, in the side room. Just being in that, in Soundtrack, a lot of, a lot of 90s, a lot of uh, legendary artists used to come through Soundtrack. Teddy Riley was one of them. It's where I met Vincent Herbert at the time. You know, a host of different artists came through that, through that studio. And so, it just so happened that a friend of Teddy Riley, in the lobby we started talking and I ended up sending her some of my music and that was you know one day my mother got a call I came home my mother said Teddy Riley called me and that was the beginning of a whole new era of my life in the, in the
0: music industry. and for those of you that don't know who Vincent Herbert is he's the production team three boys Newark and he also had a hand in helping develop Lady Gaga when she was just getting started so what was it like for you making that transition from up north and then going down to Virginia Beach when Teddy was setting up shop?
1: with Future Studios. It was just a shock period that Teddy Riley was calling for me. You know what I'm saying? I didn't spend a lot of time in Virginia Beach, but when you you gotta imagine, just imagine yourself from watching somebody that you really like, like I said earlier, like Groove Me, the whole New Jack swing was something that I really, it really was, I was captivated by that style of music at that time. And so the founder of it is calling me. That was just a shock period. And you know what I'm saying? I was from the North, but you know Teddy's from New York, so it was like a home away from home, you know? I was blown away. He's like a hero to me, you
0: know? Yeah, because when I give my favorite producers list, Teddy, for me, is number one, and where I grew up in North Carolina, Virginia Beach, is a little less than a two-hour drive, so once we heard that Teddy was setting up shop, everybody down my way was like, oh, Teddy Riley's coming down here, and it was just a big deal, because outside of what L.A. and Babyface was doing down in Atlanta, with from the face, you didn't really think anybody else would come south to up shop with the studio and to try to cultivate talent in the area.
1: Yeah, that was the future records, man. That's what it was.
0: Definitely that, the future records. And your first assignment, once you got down there, you co-wrote along with Teddy Riley and Bernard Bell, who is the brother of R&B singer Regina Bell, One More Night for Bobby Brown off the Bobby album, which came out in 92. Now, what was your process going into co-writing that song for Bobby? And did you kind of know what direction it sound? He wanted to take from the monster success of Don't Be Cruel and seeing how much... The sound in R&B has changed from 88 to 92.
1: Okay, you're asking me two questions in one. So, like, let me ask the first one. Like, the the process for me was Teddy gave me some music, and I just wrote what I felt, and it worked. It was that simple. It happened, again, it happened naturally. You know, at that point, I knew I was confident in my writing skills. You know what I mean? I didn't have an ego problem. You know, sometimes with gifts, it's a mystery. You know, you just do it. You know what I mean? You don't even know. You have the ability to do it, and you just do it. Now, there's a second part of that question I want to answer, so I just need you to run it by me again. All right, so the
0: second question is, did you kind of know what direction musically Bobby wanted to go into, given how much the R&B landscape has changed sound-wise from 88 when Don't Be Cool
1: was released and 92 when the Bobby album was released? You know, to be honest, we were in pre production stages. Again, the, the track that Teddy gave me, he happened to be working with him. So I just followed the guidelines of what the music was speaking to me. And wrote. I knew Bobby's sound. You know, I just wrote according to what I thought would he would sound good melodically for Bobby Brown, and, and it worked.
0: Mm-hmm. And based on doing your research on Bobby, how would you say melodically Bobby's vocals fit into uh Benson, uh Herb Middleton, Teddy Riley production? What one word would you describe how Bobby's Melody would fit into an arrangement?
1: I could just do a description of what I feel like Bobby Brown as an R&B legend. Mm -hmm. It's iconic. It's iconic. That's what comes to me.
0: Definitely iconic because when you look at Don't Be Cruel and then the shift to the Bobby album, very, very, very solid, very strong album. Now, the one person out of the Future Studios camp, that I feel is the secret weapon to most of all of Teddy's productions. Tammy Lucas. Oh, yeah, Tammy Lucas. She's a beast. Vocally, her backgrounds for me are some of the best backgrounds in the business. For those of you that don't know, go back and listen to a lot of the Teddy Riley production. Most of her Mm -hmm. backgrounds are on his album. And I'm going to mention that there were some young men that was, Around the future studios during this time, they went to high school at Princess Anne High School. They were in a group called FBI surrounded by idiots with a pre Devontae Swing the Basement cymbaland. So what was your first reaction or inkling when the Neptunes started to come around? the studio
1: i wasn't around for that ever i didn't even realize that the neptunes came out of teddy's camp until way later my period was so quick with future records and being down to virginia beach it was like i'd not have spent a week at that and i was it
0: so you went from future and then get the call from diddy to come over and work with him over at bad boy so what was that like for you getting that call knowing that he was about to go
1: to leave uptown and to go star Bad Boy. That was another landmark of my career, you know, coming home and becoming a part of Download Production which afforded me which gave me the opportunity to produce Big Bum who was another new jack swinger and that a, that record got the attention of puff and I got the call that he wanted to meet with me. You know, again, it was another exciting landmark. You know, I'm being honest. Like, I didn't really know who he was back then. I just knew the music was dope coming, that I was hearing from Mary J. You know me on the 411 record. And then when I got down there, I learned right then who he was. I mean, I heard the name before, you know what I'm saying, but I ain't know that he was the depth behind the sound that I really appreciated as much no you meaning know, before I got there.
0: And you mentioned working with Big Bub from today, and the cut was telling me stories off his 1993 debut album, Coming At You. And I tell people all the time, Big Bub, no slouch vocally, I Like Your Style that he did for House Party 2, favorite cut of mine. And I kind of put Big Bub in the category where he the power vocalist and to me sounded like what Luther Vandross would have sounded like heady gone full blown New Jack Swing. you nailed
1: that right on the head bro
0: yeah that whole album banger and shout out to Redhead Kingpin Redhead Kingpin very underrated as a producer yep Very much so, and you did cuts off of Mary's My Life album, and what was that process like being in the studio with her coming off the success of What's the 411 and trying to make the sophomore debut even better than 411?
1: The the process was, at that point, working with or doing stuff for Mary, it was a team effort, so it was just everything just naturally took place. And um, we had a strong team. We had Big Buck, uh, Puff Broad, and Faith Evans. I mean, Faith Evans was Bad Boy at that time. So it was a great team effort and, um bringing the records that we made for Mary for that My Life album.
0: Right. And uh, was Mary Brown around during that time with the recording process? Mary Brown from
1: Abstract and later
0: the duo Eminem?
1: I don't think she was around for that project from no. what I recall.
0: And then you had a hand in writing and producing Can't You See for Total. And I did an interview with Monica and Terry from The Girls. They were talking about how they had a hand in
1: writing that and also doing backing vocals on that cut as well. Well, my position in that record as credited was I was uh, did The Keys. So just to give you the history on that, Puff came in with a beat, and he said, "You yeah, heard play something over this," and I did, and that's how that the music that's that that was my contribution to that record. I didn't write at all; I just did the music.
0: So, did you have any other interactions with the production squad from Daddy's House, like Hard Pierre, Tony Dolphat, D Dot, Ryan M, Raw Lawrence, Jack Knight, Mario,
1: Easy Moby? My work with Easy B., Tony Dolphat, Hard Pierre was an executive at that time. He was. Coming up, he's doing a lot of things so far. We had a little family back then. Everybody was helping each other grow. You know, as far as uh, the producers, those producers I had this and collaborated back in the tone of tone. It was like a little team. It was a production team, you know? Mm. So was
0: it like everybody would bounce off ideas from each other and just sit in the cl- room and collaborate? Or you go to your room, you go to your room, you write, and then you come back, reconvene, and then
1: just feed off of what everybody's gone off to do? Yeah, we each had rooms. Puff would have three or four rooms running one, one at a time, and at the end of the day, he was the person that could kind of say what he was the boss, you know. So what we did as producers, we did, you know, I bounce ideas. I was one of the, you know, one of those guys. I was just straight up musician, you know. I did a lot of performing and playing on different tracks, you know, for other producers who were more like beat men, so to speak. Mm-hmm.
0: uh, and what is your approach to songwriting when working for an artist do you already have an idea of what they're going to sing or is it more of a collaborative effort where you sit down you bounce ideas off the artist and then you tailor make a song idea based on conversation?
1: I treat every artist differently because every artist to me is different and it depends on if they are a writer or not. I love collaborating, so what I do is just like kind of leave the floor open and I'll lead the way with the music because when I first work with an artist, I already know kind of know which way I'm going to go musically just based upon the individuality of that artist and if they're a writer you know it makes it even more better for me because like I said as a songwriter I like to
0: collab. I'm going to throw out to you names of producers
1: and I want you to describe their production style from your point of view. Jam and Lewis. This sound is again the word iconic we've heard within the last year more than ever. Those guys, they are iconic, and I say iconic because you know their sound It's recognizable. They've capitalized on an individual sound that is um, so spoken. Cool.
0: L.A. and Babyface.
1: What's another word for saying iconic? Legendary. Legendary.
0: And I'll be sure in Kyle West. They're drinking. dream team.
1: For artists and producers, they're an example of what a great artist and producer could do if they stay locked.
0: Right, because I was listening to Soul about the next Sequence and Kyle West did the production on it. And it had that big, booming sound that you would hear like an arena. And I was just like, wow, just sonically huge. And you could pretty much mix that cut along with any up-tempo off of in effect mode. And I feel that I'll be sure his production... Oh, man, from Tevin to Jodeci, his own stuff, he did David Bowie, Barbara Palmer. I mean, I'll be sure, to me, doesn't get enough credit for what he's done on the production side.
1: Mm-hmm. Quite a few of those out there.
0: And what was the one producer, in your opinion, you felt was the most underrated and doesn't really get enough credit for what they've contributed to the music industry? Me. <laughs>
1: Uh, I'm joking, man. The line of producers that I am familiar with, Jay, they, they have gotten adjusted. Mm-hmm. They have gotten it. On Tim and Bob, those guys are great producers that I feel like they had an, an organic sound that separated them from anybody else. I think those guys could be up there a little more, beyond be honest.
0: I agree, because I messaged Brandon and Cura from the group Mr. on social media. He told me that Tim and Bob had a Mr. sophomore album done in the can, but East, West, shelved it. And then another little backstory with Tim and Bob was that originally, Voice Men wanted them to do the two album, But when Gerald Busby heard about that, he was like, I don't want to risk putting the careers of the biggest group in the world in the hands of two producers who don't really have a track record. So what ended up happening was the songs that Tim and Bob had originally for Voice Men ended up going to 112 for their self titled debut album. Sounds very familiar. Now, were there some tracks that you've done that went to one artist, but then in hindsight felt like it would have been a better fit, or you had the mindset of it goes to who was supposed to go to?
1: I have one record that I did for LaFace originally. It was named the the records called Don't Cry For Me. I produced it for D.D. O'Neill from She The Simon LaFace. And she was like really, as vocally, she was up there with Whitney. But she got dropped. The record ended up going to Change Your Faces. Oh, man.
0: Dee Dee I think she
1: did primarily a lot of the backing vocals on a lot of the face cuts. She probably did. Dee Dee O'Neal was was sick. She was a dope. I don't even know Mm -hmm. where she is right now. I haven't heard from her in years.
0: Right. And that, for me, shows by the 90s All across the board, regardless of genre, was that because you had stars upon stars, and then everybody that was doing backing vocal work, or maybe in the second or third tier range, were just as good, if not Mm -hmm.
1: better. Mm
0: -hmm. And tell me about your work with brownstone and swv and what do you think
1: were the similarities and the differences between both groups swv it was working with them swv was like a shockwave to me creatively because again i'm kind of working with these this group that that did so into you weak in the need you know what i mean and now i'm in the studio producing them so it was it was exciting working with them you know They're always fun to work with. Comparing them to Brownstone, I couldn't, because Brownstone, their sound was just, like, so unique. No comparison in any way, shape, or form. Which is one of the things the 90s brought to the music industry. If you had a girl group, nobody was really trying to sound the same. You know what I mean? Everybody had their identity vocally, mm-hmm. present-wise. Brownstone sounded sound like a, a three-girl choir. SWB had that real inspirational sound, but they didn't sound as big as Brownstone, but they did what they did.
0: Right, because Coco, she can sing the phone book and sound good. Vocally, one of the best female vocalists I've heard and for those of you that don't know she was the female vocalist on Men in Black with Will Smith Mm -hmm. but for those of you that don't know and I don't know if you are familiar or were familiar with the UK R&B group Eternal they were a four woman group they originally were four now they were three piece they were trying to make a launch here in the states in the early 90s they had a cut called Stay that got some airplay here and actually Teddy did a remix for that and I was mentioning to music and culture critic Amy Linden about how it was tough for a lot of international acts to break in the U.S. because it was so crowded with male groups and girl groups and how over there pretty much in every international country they take their cue musically from the u.s but just put their own cultural spin to it Mm -hmm. so how do you think with your work over with several uk acts that urban music in the uk is totally different from urban music here in the states
1: how do i feel it's different
0: yeah how do you feel it's different with UK urban as opposed to US urban. Well UK urban is like you said, we
1: are strong influencers of their sound, but they are more appreciative of the sound that we've offered them or we've served them with. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like they they stick to the soul no matter what it is that they sing. They sing from a, a very soulful place that is, it's just soulful. Right? I mean, that's the new home of soul music, the UK. We have the Jill's here. We have the Erica Badu's here. But if you go over there and get some of those artists that do what they do, man. It's like, it's so dope, but it's appreciated. Mm,
0: yeah, we could go down the line of all of the UK artists that were heavily influenced by US. R&B music from The Beatles Stones George Michael Boy George Adele Sam Smith Brand New Heavies The list goes on and on of all the acts out mm-hmm. of the UK that were heavily influenced by us.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and the one thing I found fascinating about UK urban music was that prior to now, where you got BBC One extra of our urban outlets, UK urban music wasn't as celebrated back in the day because pop music ruled. You had BBC One and Capital Radio, which was top 40 over there, and how in order to hear urban music, you had to tune into underground pirate radio and sat down didn't become a commercial station in the UK until 1990 so it took until then to finally get an urban radio station on the airway legally in the UK.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I just found that odd and shocking because I know a lot of British urban acts, once they came over here to America, they were surprised at like, oh, there's a radio station just playing this type of music or there's a television station that plays only this kind of music and we're well received and we're more welcome in this country as opposed to our own home country because when you look at Top of the Pop, there wasn't really a high representation of urban acts.
1: Mm-hmm. at that yeah. time. It still goes on today. People are not receive well in their own town. You know, you got to go outside their own town and be appreciated.
0: Right. I definitely agree. And as a songwriter, I want to get your thoughts on the show Songland, if you're not familiar with what it is, it's a show where you have Ryan Tedder from One Republic, Esther Dean, and Shane McNally, country songwriter, and they bring in a guest artist each week and four hopeful songwriters to pitch their song. Three get to go in the studio with either Ryan, Esther, or Shane to rework their song and then pitch it back to the artist for the week and then the artist picks a song for them to cut on their own. So I want to get your take on that and how it's kind of drawing back the curtain at the songwriting process.
1: I heard about that I heard about that show. I think it's really good. I think with shows like that, the creative process and the respect more creativity is being is being showcased. You know, what I'm saying with that with that show. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I haven't watched it, but I heard about it. It kind of is uh, is refreshing to be honest.
0: Yeah, I agree because you rarely get to see that unless you're in the scene going to studios. Now, is there a difference writing wise, depending on what genre of music? of the art that you're writing for, like a country song is different from writing a song that will get played on pop or urban radio? Do you think there's a difference in regards to genre when it comes to songwriting? Or is it universal, no matter the genre?
1: There's only genres because so people can have something to take from. Everything is not supposed to sound the same because there would be a world of music lovers that are not being satisfied. So, you know, everything has to sound different. And as a songwriter, you got to know how to make it work. For the, the consumer you know.
0: right because coming from the south i wasn't really too up on country music like that but when i looked at kim burns documentary on country music i was open to that man writing a country song is different but with a lot of the newer younger country artists that's coming out i've been noticing that the lines have been blurred because a lot of a lot of them grew up listening to country but they also grew up listening to r&b hip-hop, rock, and just mixed in different dramas with what was considered to be traditional country. Mm-hmm. And as far as songwriting goes, were there any songwriters that you looked to for inspiration like Holland Dozier, Holland, Smokey Robinson,
1: L.A. Babyface, Gamble & Huff? Definitely L.A. and Babyface, top of the list. Definitely those guys, their pens was ridiculous. They're just, just great, man. They just you know, I wish they would come back full blast. It will definitely help the industry.
0: Right. And one thing I find unique about L.A. and Faze and Jamie Lewis as well is that when they're working with a female artist that they're able to write from the female's perspective. And for me,
1: I think that's hard to do. Really? I think everybody's different. It's easy for me to write from a female perspective. I think it's hard when you try to relate to a female like a female is a guy we don't have the same taste for the most part
0: yeah i was saying that as an outsider looking in at how it would be difficult to write from a female perspective as oh, okay. a male. and i think this one guy very underrated as a producer and the work that he's done should be getting more of a salute
1: for me chucky booker oh yeah Chucky Booker's a beast.
0: Yeah, he is yeah. definitely no no joke. He was the opening act on Janet's River Nation tour and served as the MD. And I'll give you a backstory on Chucky. He told me this when I interviewed him that uh, turned away was originally supposed to go to truth.
1: Right, I could picture that.
0: Yeah, so what happened was he played it for Sylvia Roan, who was head of Atlantic, and she told him that this is going on your album. And he was trying to tell her that, nope, this is the truth. And she was like, nope, this is going on your record. And once he told truth what happened, they were like, man, we're hurt. We wanted them song to song Some the Turn Away. So that's where we get Spread My Wings. Right. Nice. That is where Spread My Wings come from. And Clark Kent, the remix for that still is a banger. Now, what are your thoughts on remixes and how they're able to take what was from the original song and make it a totally new composition. Because me, I'm a huge
1: fan of remixes. I think, you know, remixing is good, and a good remixer can do just that. You just take the original song and just take it to the next level. If we can't do that, it's not a remix, as far as I'm concerned. It's just a failed record.
0: Because for me, when I listen to a remix, I want to hear originality, and I just don't want to hear a new beat on top of the same lyrics. I want to hear rework reworked lyrics. I want to hear a new beat, and I want to hear some edits sliced in. That's how I judge a remix for me. My
1: criteria.
0: Because mm-hmm. I'm a music fan. Like I was telling you, I grew up in the 90s. So listening to remixes from Diddy, Jamie Lewis, and all the prominent producers and remixers of that time, it was just a great moment for music for me. And you also worked with Al Green and Teddy
1: Pendergrass, correct? Teddy Pendergrass song. I remixed his song, his last song that he recorded before he passed. I was hired to remix it. His song. Al Green, I I worked with him on a project that was featuring. Actually, Ann Nesby featuring Al Green.
0: Was that put it on paper? Yeah. Man, one of my favorite cuts. And Ann Nesby, we're going to get into Jamisa right now because Ann Nesby is her mother and Mm -hmm. Jamika's daughter, Paris Bennett, who was on American Idol some years ago. And the cut that you did for Jameika, was
1: it rodeo style off of Jason Flair? Yeah, it was a co production rodeo style with Chad Elliott and myself.
0: Chad Elliott, Dr. Seuss Elliott. I didn't know it's a recent that he was the little kid Chad from Crush Groove. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I did not know that. I was like, you mean to tell me this is the guy that did Philo for 702, that he got his start singing Be My Girl in Crush Groove and put out an album? Mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, that was crazy. So Jason's lyric soundtrack, heavy, heavy soundtrack from Black Man United, you need Whitehead Brothers, and the 90s, for me, was also an era where soundtracks were just as strong as the movies. Mm -hmm. And why do you think that time period led to soundtracks being strong? Why why do I think it it led
1: to being, I mean, it was just a different era. Yeah, definitely a different era. Yeah, great, great music. Like, Mm -hmm. what Isaac Hayes was able to do on um, Shaq, that soundtrack. Now, that takes people way back, but that Mm -hmm. soundtrack was great. You could listen to it and not watch the movie.
0: Right. And I'm a big stickler for album sequencing, where I want it to flow where I can listen to it without having to skip over a track and make sure that it's layered perfect. And I think Jam and Lewis, they do a good job at sequencing because for me, the Heartbreak album, great sequenced album because with the way that they told the story with the intro and the beginning and then how they brought Johnny into the back end of the album, I thought was pure perfection for me. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think sequencing plays an important role when it comes to having a classic album?
1: I think sequencing is the producer. It all depends on who the producer is, you know, because whether it's sequence or it's live, what's going to make the difference every time is if who the producer is.
0: And with sampling, I was just looking at this video before we came on for this interview. It was a video of Kanye. This was during College Dropout where he was in the studio and he was chopping up a Shirley Murdoch sample, Go On Without You. And he used an Anthony keyboard because he said that you can be able to sample at the same rate without using the memory into the ar machine and what is your thoughts on sampling and the techniques that that are used to sample
1: i don't know it's like everybody has their own creative process you know i don't know if i'm really answering your question the way not just being like kind of honest with you like yeah go ahead you gotta everybody has a different creativity is so free and everybody whatever works for people it, it just works you know what I'm saying? Like, what they use. Just to tell you about myself, I use Atari for most of the 90s music that I could do. And people would laugh at that because I use the Atari. It'd be like, you use a what? You know, I made it work. You know what I'm saying? So it depends on, it. at the height of everything, at the helm, it's the producer that produces, knows his skill set, knows how to bring the best out of whatever he's working with. Right. That takes a gift. That takes gifting. You know, you it you learn by trial and error, but overall, you got to have an ear to be able to do that. You know what I'm
0: saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and back to what I was saying earlier about how the early producers had to make do with what they had, I was just amazed at how producers like Ted, and Marley Mall produced all of these classic albums that we know and love, and pretty much home studios. I think Teddy used his bathroom as a vocal booth to cut Bobby's "My Prerogative and used a tissue holder in the mic for like echo. And I was just amazed at how innovative those producers were with what they had, given the technological limitations of the time. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah,
0: see what I'm saying? You just
1: make it work. <laughs> You know, we don't have these, and now technology is so advanced. It's like, you know, we when you come from that era where you don't have, you just learn how to use what you have. And so now it's like me, you know, of course I use today's program, you know, whatever hardware, software today, but I still maintain the simplicity of just being creative and using what I have.
0: Mm-hmm. And from a producer standpoint, why do you think the debt didn't take off? I thought the debt took off. Right, because I think they were trying to make it more consumer-friendly, but it's pretty much was primarily used in production.
1: Right. In my field, that was my friend. <laughs> you really on top of your game and knowledge because it wasn't a consumer's piece. It's for people who work in, in the industry. Mm-hmm. And as far as
0: your production use, was there a favorite machine that you used to use that was big for you, but you look at it today, you're like, man, how did I use that?
1: Yeah, probably... And, uh, and ADAP machines.
0: Mm. Now, for those of us who are not familiar with the industry, how was the DAP machine able to make your production sound cleaner? And just kind of give us a brief overview of why the DAP was so significant in terms of audio production. I
1: use the DAP to transfer my mixes. That's what I use the DAP for. Again, I can only speak for myself. The DAP was the thing that bounce my mixes down to my engineer, and I'll be able to take it home and listen to it and get the quality that I had in the studio. Mm.
0: And Also, you feel now that since everything is going digital where you don't really need to step foot in the studio anymore, but a lot of people still want to get that warm analog sound, and they try to have programs to try to You capture
1: that. You ask me or you making a statement?
0: I'm making a statement as far as that goes, how you have a lot of artists who still want to get that warm analog sound and you can't really reproduce that with digital. No, you can't.
1: You can't. I mean, you can try, you know what I mean? What I do, I just try to keep things as simple and as organic, organic, if I'm using the right word. not I me mean say organic, but if you want to get that sound, you got to try to lock into not over-processing. Because once you over it's, it's you're into that technical space sound.
0: Right, and I think another thing that really doesn't get mentioned as far as audio production goes is the importance of having the right person do your mixing and your mastering because the audiophile who has a strong... On ear can hear when an album's not properly mixed or mastered. So, do you think having a correct person that can properly
1: mix and master your record is important into an album success? Absolutely, wholeheartedly, a hundred percent. Because I used to have a couple of engineers I used to mess with back in the day, and. Like, Mark Partis is one of them, and he will always bring out my mixes. It's important to have somebody to bring out the originality of your mixes and put a shine to it versus switch it up and make it sound like it's not the original record. Because I've had records that I've had people mix man, and they made it sound like another record. I was, that right there, that thing used to make me flip my wig. Right, where
0: the sound was very
1: muddy? Nah, just the sound, you know, like, I'm big on big drums. Like, if you make my drums sound, like, light, you know what I mean? I'm big on popping snares, like, you make my snare sound like they not present, you know that I can't deal with that. then mm-hmm. you know mixing the vocals right. So it's, to answer your question, is very really important having a mixer that they can bring out, enhance your original idea. You know what I mean? Mixing mm-hmm. and mastering. Well, I make sure when my mixes are almost sound like they mastered already, so there's not a lot of work for masters to do.
0: Right? Because it's a lot more work on the engineer that's going to be mixing and mastering if you have a cut that almost sounds like an unpolished demo. Mm-hmm. So you really. We want to have it almost ready to go so like you said they can work smarter and not harder and I don't know if you've seen this on YouTube there is video of it was an episode of Video Soul with Donnie Simpson he was at Flight Time with Jam and Lewis and they were cutting Fishnet or Moore's Day it was unreleased at the time and they were going through the process of working the board and to see the setup and to see how they were able to put everything together I was just amazed by that and when You mentioned You Like Your Snare's Big. It just brought me to the mind of that because they put a lot of room tracks into that record where the drums had a echo and a lot of reverb. Mm -hmm. And I'm a huge fan of room tracks. And I like a lot of echo and I like a lot of snare. And I think for me, the simpler the record is, the better. Because once again, back to a remix, if you go too overboard with the edits, and everything, I tune out, and it's a skill to know when to put in this room track here, when to put in this snare here, when to put in this edit here, and I think that's something that you have to learn, but it takes a skill to know when to put it in a record, mm-hmm. and to me, one of the best the remixing duos, in my opinion, Latin Rascals. They had remixes that when they were played on KTU, BLS, it was amazing at the edits that they were doing because this was all done real real to real and light tape. And I was just thinking like, man, that probably took you probably four plus hours to do, but they made it sound so easy and also shut Pettibone as well. Yeah, chefs remixes were tough and were cold. And where do you see music going right now, given all the technological advancements? and how you could pretty much work with an artist in anywhere in the world and collaborate via technology. Do you think that we'll have that essence of music being collaborative like it was where you actually had to be in the studio or we've lost that given how small the world is now because of technology?
1: Well, we've lost it to a certain degree, but also, again, back to something I was saying earlier, if you're good at your craft, you can still produce whether you're in the room or you're on Skype or Zoom, you could do it. You know, I've I had to produce several artists long distance, you know, you know, and especially now with this, uh, we deal dealing with the pandemic, technology is allowing some of us to still do what we do. You
0: know? Yeah, I definitely agree that we've lost sense of that, but with technology, we take advantage of what's being given, and I'm sure labels are happy about that because I don't really have a big studio budget like I used to do back in the day where if an artist didn't show up for their session, the labels were eating money because they had to pay for that studio time Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and how much do you think back in the day most studios were going for as far as their hourly rate for studio time did it vary based on the
1: studio what hourly rate they were charging yeah this is all based on the studio location and equipment
0: Mm -hmm. now were most of the engineers at these studios were they freelance engineers or were they in-house
1: For the most part, the engineers I used to use, they were contracted engineers. They didn't work at the studio.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, because I know what a lot of artists used to do when, if they didn't have their own home-based studio, Prince was notorious for this, where he would go to a particular studio and he would block out time to where only he could use the studio and pretty much everybody that was working there was pretty much primarily on call when he was working the studio and then Jeremy Lewis at light time. That was just their own personal studio. They didn't let anybody else other than them use it. Now, do you think that that was an advantage to the creativity when you have your own private studio where you can just create and not have to worry about having anybody else embarging your session or you kind of get a better feel when you use a studio that's more open where anybody can
1: use it? It depends on the the artist, the producer. I'm one one that like to be private when I produce. So my private spot or if it's is my private private studio or if it's a studio and that's open to the public, I like my closed. I'm distracted.
0: Right. And I find that interesting too that you have some that like an open setting where you have people in the studio as they're recording because they feed off their energy and those like yourself that like it be a closed session where you can be able to function and be able to be creative and like you said minimize the distraction. So I find it interesting how certain people have different philosophies when it comes to production and songwriting either being in a crowd or out of a crowd. Right. And do you have any upcoming singles that you like to plug and any projects that you have coming
1: out yeah i just released a record last week called world party at, on the artist's name is luminous i just started a new label called moontown Records, and um that's the first single that that's being released from that label i have my website com where i'm really focusing on bringing back the quality sound from artists that are new or older um working on a new girl group i can't say right now because it's, it's a surprise <laughs> But it's gonna be something, it's gonna be something significant and it's going to work. I really believe it's going to take the industry by storm when they find mm-hmm. out who it is I'm working with.
0: Okay, so definitely stay tuned for that big reveal
1: when you reveal that
0: and you have a spot to come back on with all your acts and we can do a showcase. And How do you think that running a label in the 21st century has changed as to when labels were the center of everything prior to technology?
1: Well, labels right now, as far as technology has made on um, record labels kinda like really not um relevantly important as they used to be with the exception of the record companies those that are still have their doors open, they have the bread to make it happen. But other than that, like technology has forced everybody to do everything in their bathroom right now, in their house. So in the room before you have to go to a record company to get the bigger sound. Well you got you know how to use the technology these days to get that sound. And from a standpoint of creativity and sonically for mixing and mastering, you know what I'm saying? So technology makes it real easy for everybody to do it. But again, if you don't have the skill set and the knowledge on how to make great music, it don't make a difference.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think in her Grammy acceptance speech, Billy Irish had mentioned that she did her album in the bedroom and how, like you stated earlier, the record labels are kind of looked at as not as big as they once was prior to technology where artists can immediately upload their albums directly to a streaming platform or what have you without needing a label because if you already have a following via your social media whether it's instagram snapchat facebook tiktok you can pretty much have your fan base say hey i'm doing an upload of my album at this website go download it and i get to keep the money because i don't have to sign or share it with the label so that's why it is amazing to see that back in the mid-90s cramped was very heavy on do it yourself because he's released Emancipation in his later albums through the MPG website. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think it's do it yourself. It is creativity one on one, and if you can do it and learn it, then you're gonna be a success. Now I'll be remiss if I didn't ask. I was looking in your bio. You sang in a gospel choir when you were a kid, and then
1: did you happen to catch? the Clark Sisters movie on Lifetime? I think in a choir when I was a kid I was more of a musician in churches. I did catch a little bit of Clark Sisters, yeah, quite a little bit
0: of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that interesting because how Dr. Maddie Moss Clark, she, along with James Cleveland, pioneered a lot of stuff in gospel music and a lot of artists took what they learned from them, transferred it into different genres, and then I noticed on the production credits that uh, Donald Lawrence had a hand in doing some behind-the-scenes work with that movie as well yeah
1: yeah i mean it was a good movie it revealed some craziness but it was a good movie
0: yeah i loved it and the car vocally you could hear how their sound influenced 90s girl groups like swv and escape who covered is my living in vain off the coming coming at you album and how everybody took elements from certain people and made it their own and i think like what we were saying earlier that's what made music in the 80s 90s and so on so unique because everybody had a sense of originality.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: Let the people know where they can find you via social media as far as, websites and how can they get in touch with you if they want to
1: possibly you know collaborate or anything you can find me on most social media platforms as herb middleton herb middleton one on instagram herb middleton on facebook twitter it's just simple herb middleton if you see anything that has to do with music it's most likely me my website is herb middleton com. that is again www.herb MiddletonMusic.com. If you want to get in touch with me as far as, you know, production services or whatever, you can hit me up at Info at and from that point, I will direct you to my management team.
0: All right, folks, there you have it. And do you have any shout outs you want to give before we conclude the interview? And
1: shout out number one to my manager, Soulji Rockstone, who helped set this up. And anybody um, else out there, shout out to the whole world. You know, just let love abide, that peace, let peace reign. Be safe. You know sanitize, wear your gloves, wear your mask, so this diagram thing is over. Hopefully
0: it'll be done. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it, Mr. Herb Millison. Herb, thank you very much for doing this interview. I appreciate you, my brother.
1: Oh, no problem. My pleasure, man. Anytime.